My name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Today, I'm going to share with you some little known information about epigenetics, that science popularized so much by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Bruce Lipton. To this day, DNA is looked upon as the architect, builder, and overlord of the body, drafting a lifelong blueprint and then using it to spearhead and oversee all the body's dynamic activities. This is also this is all supposedly managed through a straightforward mechanistic process of selectively turning on and off certain genes, the steps on the spiral ladder of the double helix. These nucleotides or genetic instructions make copies of themselves as messenger ribonucleic acid molecules. That's what we call RNA, which choose from an alphabet of amino acids, the genetic words that create one of the body's approximately 150,000 specific proteins to carry out the body's myriad functions. After the discovery of DNA, biologists James Watson and Charles Crick laid down what they called the central dogma that cellular informational commands flowed in a single direction from DNA to messenger RNA to the selected combination of amino acids to the assemblage of proteins. Any proposals with the faintest suggestion that this process was reversible, that outside agents could affect the proteins that make up living organisms, and that these proteins could affect RNA and ultimately DNA were discredited as fan fantasy. But as more recent research has decisively demonstrated, genes, far from being the central controller, exist much as subatomic particles do, purely as a potential to be activated or not by signals outside our body. Research now suggests that information actually flows from the other direction, from outside in. An environmental signal of some sort alerts the body that a particular protein product is needed. And it's the outside environmental signal that activates particular genetic expression. Genes get turned on, turned off, or modified by our life circumstances and environment, what we eat, who we surround ourselves with, and how we lead our lives. <clears throat> Imagine a giant manufacturing plant with a central office and large numbers of energy centers used to power the rest of the plant so large and sophisticated that they are host to thousands of simultaneous chemical and electrical processes. 
Then imagine that there are 40 trillion of these extraordinary manufacturing plants sitting cheek by jowl next to each other, trading resources back and forth, and you begin to comprehend the dynamic life of every one of the 100 trillion cells in your body. Each cell is a body unto itself, capable in the space of 10 micrometers, that's pretty small, of carrying out all the varied activities, respiration, consumption, replication, excretion, that your body engages in as a totality. Nevertheless, no matter how adept at multitasking, acutely observant of change, and rapidly adaptable, not one single cell in your body is capable of any function without some word from a signal outside itself. In fact, as scientists are now beginning to understand, the switch that turns on or off genes lies outside your body. The cytoplasm or blob of jelly that makes up every cell in your body is encased in a semi-permeable cell membrane, a triple layer of fat-like molecules containing a variety of protein molecules that act like little revolving doors for other molecules to enter or exit the cell. Whether or not a molecule gets through the cell membrane depends on, I'll do that again, whether or not a molecule gets through the cell membrane depends entirely on these gatekeeper proteins, which are called receptors because they function like antennae, picking up external signals from other molecules and in turn signaling to other proteins to modify the cell's behavior. The membrane contains hundreds of thousands of these protein receptor switches, which possess the ability to regulate a cell's function by switching a certain gene on or off. But what prompts the turn of the switch is an environmental signal from the air, water, and food we consume, the toxins we're exposed to, even the people we surround ourselves with. This in turn affects the chemical coding called methylation of the DNA double helix, which is exquisitely sensitive to the environment, particularly in the early stages of our lives. During this process, the methyl group, that's a quartet of atoms, attaches to a specific gene and sends it a message to silence it, reduce its expression, or in some way alter its function. As pioneering scientists are beginning to recognize the epigenome's true function is to act as an interface between outside and inside the body as the gene's interpreter of environmental signals. This signaling occurs outside the gene and doesn't alter the genetic sequency or interfere in any way with the letters of the four-unit genetic code. This means that the true controller of a gene 
and whether it's activated or not, is the host of influences outside the body. Diet, the quality of air and water, the emotional climate within your family, the state of your relationships, your sense of fulfillment in life, the sum total of how you live your life and also how your ancestors lived theirs has the most effect on the expression of your genes. Every factor in our lives conspires to create the physical person that we become. The environment outside our bodies determines the environment within. Like subatomic particles, our physical body isn't a discrete entity, but the end product of a relationship. Pretty mind-blowing, huh? At the forefront of this research is a team at McGill University in Montreal, led by Moshe Schiff, an Israeli-born professor of pharmacology and therapeutics. Schiff's lab owns a batch of patents on DNA products, all for DNA formulations that he hopes will change the course of medical history. Schiff believes within the human epigenome, I'm gonna do that again. Schiff believes that within the human epigenome, he will find the cure for cancer, which in his view has to do with manipulating the methylation process, the coding of DNA, as I said, so that the on switch for cancerous genes gets turned off permanently. Schiff has discovered that a major hallmark of cancer is an aberration in methylation patterns, so that genes needed for rapid cell growth, invasion, and metastasis aren't kept in check. Schiff's work also defies current thinking about epigenetics. Many scientists exploring this new field had first assumed that epigenetic changes operated a bit like the butterfly effect in chaos theory, which, with its idea of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. In other words, small changes occurring early in your environment when you're a baby will produce large changes in genetic expression, but then remain constant through life. Schiff's work in the laboratory decisively demonstrates otherwise. In a series of studies, he showed that numerous kinds of stress responses in a variety of animals by one set of conditions early in life could be deprogrammed out of the organism by changing the conditions later in life. In one study, Schiff was able to reverse abnormalities in baby rats caused by unhealthy mothering by handing the rat pups to foster mothers who treated them normally. Epigenetic conditions now appear to be fluid, wholly reversible in adulthood. That's mind boggling with huge implications. Of all forms of cancer, a family history of breast cancer is usually assumed to be one of the most clearly marked genetic indications that a woman is likely to develop the disease. Recently, some doctors have counseled healthy women with a certain gene to undergo a single or double mastectomy, 
as a just-in-case procedure to prevent the development of breast cancer. Several epidemiologists at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York, questioned this practice after examining data from one of the most controversial studies of women in American history, the Women's Health Initiative, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. One of the largest studies to follow women for several decades, the WHI was expected to confirm the safety and benefits of hormone replacement therapy, among other treatments and practices. Five years into the study of hormone replacement, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board of the WHI, that's the Women's Health Initiative, shocked the world by calling an abrupt halt to the use of HRT when it became apparent that the 16,000 participants who were taking hormones had an increased risk of developing breast cancer, ovarian cancer, stroke, and heart disease. For the Rochester scientists, the WHI represented a goldmine of data for comparing hereditary and environmentally induced cancer. When they combed through the details of the women taking part in the study, who had developed breast cancer, they naturally assumed they would find a higher incidence of cancer among those who had a family history of the disease. However, the evidence showed a similar incidence of cancer among those taking HRT, whether or not they had breast cancer in their genetic history. The particulars of a woman's genetic makeup or a family history of cancer appeared to have nothing to do with it. In this case, the environmental stressor, artificial hormones taken regularly, was the major trigger. Another type of bond with the same capacity to affect genetic expression is the quality of our social relationships. Moshe Schiff examined and compared the brains of suicide victims deliberately chosen for having had an abusive or neglectful childhood with those of patients who had died from ordinary causes. Although the genetic sequence was identical in both sets of brains, fascinating differences appeared in the epigenetic markings of the genes within the brains of those who'd committed suicide. Although Schiff could not categorically conclude that abuse in childhood definitely caused both the epigenetic markers and ultimately the suicidal depression, the circumstantial evidence was very compelling. His findings were also echoed in recent work at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto on patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. The patients were found to have alterations in the outer casing of neural DNA, again strongly suggesting an environmental cause of the mental illness and not inherited genetic history. One of the greatest of environmental switches may be the quality of our bond with a social group. Psychologists at Northwestern University have examined the effect of social grouping on genetically inherited predisposition to depression. 
True clinical depression, like most illness these days, is considered largely the fault of a bad toss of the genetic dice. The entire edifice of standard treatment for depression rests upon the theory that depression results from a chemical imbalance within the brain considered to be largely hereditary. The main genetic component for recurrent depression has to do with the serotonin transporter gene, or STG. STG comes in two distinct varieties, the short and long allele. The short allele, as its name suggests, represents the short straw. This variation carries the major on switch for depression. Anyone with this gene who experiences a series of major life stresses is considered a prime candidate for major depression. The Northwestern team is part of a new field called cultural neuroscience, which examines mental health across nations and individual social groups. In this study, they found that Westerners define themselves by their individuality, while Easterners define themselves by the extent of their acceptance within a group. In collectivistic societies, like those of East Asia, on the other hand, higher value is placed on social harmony rather than individuality. The culture encourages behaviors and practices that endorse interdependence and group cohesion. The Northwestern team made an unexpected discovery. The tighter knit the population, the higher percentage of the people who carried the gene for depression. East Asia in particular has a hugely disproportionate number of carriers of the short allele. At least 80% of the East Asian population are genetically susceptible to depression. According to the current genetic theory of depression, correspondingly high levels of depression should exist among these populations. Instead, the team found the exact opposite. Among these highly susceptible populations, the actual prevalence of depression was significantly lower than that of Western Europe or America. The expectation of social support in these highly collectivist cultures seemed to buffer people from any environmental stressors that should have triggered depression. Even genetically inherited depression could be controlled by a social switch. All of the recent research on adaptive mutation and epigenetics casts a long shadow on the idea that illness is simply a case of having good or bad genes. Not only are the on-off switches for genetic expression controlled by environmental triggers, but diseases of many varieties, cancer, inherited defects, dementia, suicide, schizophrenia, depression, and other mental illness all appear to be set off by influences outside our bodies. Diet, a strong social network and community ties, purposeful work, 
mental stimulation and an environment free of toxins and pollution may be far more important than the genes you are born with in determining the person you become and how healthy you are. These studies and others effectively demolish the central edifice of microbiology, the mechanistic assumption. I'll do that one again. These studies and others effectively demolish the central edifice of microbiology, the mechanistic assumptions about the central workings of living things, including the primacy of genetic information. Genes can no longer be considered the only driving force of nature if an outside influence can completely derail the programming. Our bond, as I say, between a living thing and its world, the relationships we have with each other and our environments are the greater hereditary force. This information turns the orthodox concept of evolution on its head. Rather than random accident, it is a cooperative process, a finely tuned and constant striving for harmony between a living thing and its world. The relationship between living things and the environment is a two-way ongoing conversation. Although much of that conversation is set down early in our lives, it is dynamic, fluid, even reversible, a relationship for life. We are a balance of internal and external influence, early and late programming, constantly transformed by the influence of every moment. Our interaction with our world is a conversation, not a monologue. Just as the observer changes what he observes, that which is observed changes the observer. This is Lynn McTaggart, helping you to live the new science. And for those of you who want to learn more about this and other aspects of the new science, I'm thrilled to announce two new courses, which we're releasing shortly. The first is called The New Science. Whether you're an absolute beginner in this area or a seasoned follower, this course offers you a comprehensive overview in bite-sized, easily understandable chunks. All the main elements of pioneering science that are completely changing our perception of our world and how we should live in it. What does it mean to be part of a quantum field? Does the observer affect what happens to the world at large? Where are our thoughts anyway? And do they affect things out there? Do the planets affect us? How far can our influence stretch in the world? What other senses do we have besides our five senses? How far does our extrasensory sense reach? The answers to these and much more are in the new science, so stay tuned. The second course is the return of my best-selling course, Become a Better Healer with the Power of Eight. It's aimed at professional healers of all varieties, whether doctors and nurses, alternative practitioners, 
chiropractors and osteopaths, physios, in fact, anyone in the healing arts field. In this four-part recorded intensive, I help you harness your thoughts and words through a set of unique tools that will boost your success rate and heal more of your patients. I've had everyone from medics to podiatrists and energy healers raving about this course. So as I say, stay tuned or sign up on the waiting list on my website, lynnmctaggart.com under courses. We'll be opening the doors soon. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting again.